millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and with Lucy Dallas away, I was off last week, she's off this week. Alex Clark is a rare fixed point amid the chaos. Hello, Alex. Thank you for stepping into the breach. I can honestly say no one has ever described me as a rare fixed point. I'm holding <laughs> on tight to it. It's very, very nice to be here. Good, good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm on my travels at the minute. Um, As we, you and I speak, and and with this week's guests, I have something in prospect. By the time our listeners hear us, we will have, I will have done it, and that is to interview the wonderful Marion Keys. That's oh, wonderful. I'm, I'm in town, uh, and so I'm really, really looking forward to that. So my, oh, exciting! Uh, that's that's what I'm up to this week, alongside this fun podcast. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, well, let's have a quick uh, dinosaur poem catch up. Uh, speaking of of fun, I hear you read out Paul Slade's wonderful original composition last week. Oh, what that was such <laughs> joy! I mean, to have that sort of you know, completely sort of lightning connection with a reader for them, a listener, for them to to supply us with material. I mean, it's the absolute dream, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Everyone <laughs> loves a dinosaur. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. A dinosaur poem. What more could you want? Oh, but apparently yeah. everyone was so impressed with it that not a soul has felt able to compete. So this week we have we have nothing. Well, that's OK. I think once you start sort of willing these things to come, they don't. They are as gifts from the universe. And they just this is drop when, when they can. And obviously, should anybody listening to us now feel moved uh, to compose, we are always ready to receive things. But but we don't expect it. We're just delighted. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, to be honest, the challenge lasted much longer than I ever expected it would. So well done. (laughs) Well done, everyone. Coming up on this week's show. Two close-ups on the troubled life of the chef, restaurateur and TV presenter, Anthony Bourdain. But first, is any puppet better known than Pinocchio, the cheeky or rather insolent protagonist of a tale which, since first appearing in Italian in the early 1880s, has been translated into more than 260 languages and is now the world's most translated book after the Bible and the Koran? 
Today in Britain, our writer Anne Hallamore Caesar tells us, Pinocchio exists in the collective consciousness in a way that few other works do, especially foreign works. So, she asks, do we really need another English translation? Well, Anne joins us now to discuss this and much more. Anne, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's start as you do then, in January 1881, on the brink of, you know, this something huge. Uh, so tell us about Carlo Collodi, so-called. Who, who was he and uh, where was he up to in his career at this point? OK, well, Carlo Collodi's real name is Carlo Lorenzini. Collodi is... He took his name after the place where his mother was born. He himself was born in Florence, so he's a Tuscan. We'll come back to that, perhaps, because it's important. And he was born in 1826 and he died in 1890, so not a terribly long life. Um, He's the son of servants, so he doesn't come from a wealthy, by any man of means, background. But he was very bright and had apparently a first class education in a seminary, learned the classics. And from there, he got a job in the leading bookshop in Florence called the Libreria Piatti. And the owner looked after him, encouraged him. He learned more. He, he became fluent in French. It was also, though, this bookshop was important because it was a centre for um, the intelligentsia to meet and also the whole sort of patriotic movement. And he then got very involved also as a fighter in the wars of independence in Italy. Because remember that we are looking at the period when Italy is moving towards unification as a country. So he fought in two wars of independence against Austria. He was a follower of Mazzini, which means he was a Republican and a liberal, but he was also realistic, I guess. And he understood that if Italy was to unify, it could only be as a monarchy. After unification, like so many others, he was soon disillusioned with the corruption and the graft that was going on. And that really also leads into his writing and his satire and various other things. Mm, so I was going to, I mean, I was going to say by by this time, by 1881, he's clearly lived and experienced uh, a lot. And, and how does that find its way into, into, his, into his style? What was he writing about? Because he was at this point, he was best known as a writer for adults. That's he? right. Well, he. He wrote also, he wrote satire, he was a journalist, a political journalist, he was a theatre critic, he wrote, uh, he was a novelist of kind of popular fiction that often was a takeoff of other types of writing. Um, his journalism is very important, and all this actually feeds into something like Pinocchio, the immediacy and the hard-hitting quality and the ability to go out and really draw his reader in. It's very direct. Mm. So do you think would readers of of his first version of of Pinocchio, which we're obviously going to go into in a lot more detail in a minute, but do you think they would have known what to expect as they they read the first instalments of this work? I don't think anybody could have expected <laughs> what. <laughs> I mean, no, is the answer. I mean, the fantasy, the imagination, the no, they might have 
been interested in what Claudie was going to come up with here. And he mm. had been writing children's fiction, but it was for schools. And it was rather, you know, of a rather different type, really. Mm. It was much more pedagogical. And is that to say that 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 kind of writing, that sort of dark fantasy that that Pinocchio uh, plays plays with so much, was that just not something that you saw among children's writing? Was he writing sort of not in any recognisable tradition? Well, you saw it in uh, the tradition of... um, Fiabe fairy tales and so forth, you know, um, that go back a long, long way and were not necessarily intended for children at all. At the time that then Collodi writes Pinocchio, I mean, this is also really the start of children's lit- literature, um, uh, you know, of writing specifically for children. in a journal that is being produced for children. This is sort of a huge expansion of the public publishing industry. And remember, of readers, because one of the problems is people couldn't read. That's that's a particularly interesting and a particularly um, pertinent point here. Uh, The fact that this paper, this uh, giornale, this newspaper uh, for Mm. children was created and that it was able to attract such established names as, as Collodi was, as you say. Um, and the fact that he then, because there was an original, the original version of Pinocchio, and then he revised it to, um, to make it less dark uh, than, it, than it first was. The fact that these things happened tell us a lot about the climate in Italy at the time, don't they? They do. He didn't, um, in terms of the, you know, what happened, the editorial history of this book, I don't think it's so much that he revised it so it would be less dark. Um, It is. The ending, obviously, is optimistic, whereas in the first one, the first version... Very much wasn't. (laughs) You know, Pinocchio is left hanging, assumed dead. (laughs) So it's not quite an upbeat ending. But um, it was, I think, the first six episodes he wrote, he wrote really because he had to pay off gambling debts. And Ah. it wasn't kind of, you know, he needed the money. And it was only after, I suspect, that it got such a a hugely successful reception and there was such demand for him to continue that he became, and he took it up again, that he became actually involved in it in a different sort of way. But that doesn't mean to say that it was less dark. It's just that the moral, I suppose, of the story then emerges more clearly. It has more of a thread to it. But that's, I mean, that's quite, that is quite a big change, isn't it? Because at that point, it it sort of becomes harnessed um, by uh, the social movements of the time, because uh, Pinocchio is becoming, his his journey is one towards becoming a, a perbene, you know, a, a good, yes. a good little boy. Yes, um, you're right. You're right. It is. Um, it is now a story which sort of steers you through to this happy ending where he becomes, well, where he moves away. He stops being a, a puppet and he becomes this, um, perfect, this well-behaved, 
uh, well-brought-up little boy. It ends with that. I mean, that's the absolute ending, although one suspects, had it gone on, that mm. well-behaved little boy would have been rather less well-behaved. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there would have been some uh, some slip-ups. He would have <laughs> his, his true personality would have shone through. But um, I suppose it's it's this that I find certainly I find particularly fascinating uh, how much Pinocchio is a product of of its time. So um, I mean, a few years after this book, um, this story comes uh, something like Edmondo de Amici's and Quare, yeah. which was published in in eighteen. I think it was 1885 or six. Mm. And, and that is the exemplar of, of, of a work that is published to, you know, forge these new little Italians to, to make yeah. almost like the model citizen for this, this country still being uh, made. And, and in Pinocchio, you see it as well on a linguistic level, don't you? The clear and simple language uh, to, to speak to people and children, as well as, as you said, people who are, who are, uh, Italians but don't speak Italian uh, you know uh, to speak to them about real life that was essential wasn't it this this kind of simple Absolutely. clear language and I think first of all the fact he was writing in the language that was to be the national language of the new country Tuscan and he was writing exactly as you say in a down-to-earth approachable way Whereas Tuscan is a language, is a literary language, and there was the problem of how to turn this literary language into an accessible language. And Collodi, because of his own background, cracked it. And one of the things I think he achieves so remarkably well in this is the orality. You know, when you read it, it's, you can hear it in your ear. You read it as it's spoken. And that, of course, is perfect for a children's book, because this is a book that should be read aloud to children, not only or not simply a book that children should read. Mm. Um, It's that immediacy which he gets, I think, as much as anything from theatre and Commedia dell'arte and vaudeville and so forth. Mm. That ability to sort of grab people almost as they're walking past in the street and and, and, yeah. and capture them. Um, so we've touched a little bit on there being these different uh, versions, the, the 1881 mm. one that was published in installments and then a later version uh, of 1883. So it's the 1883 one that uh, that most of us know, isn't it? And it spread out from Italy pretty, pretty quickly, didn't it? Yes, the 1883 one is the full um, novel, whereas the 1881 is a part of it. And it then, uh, it spread out very quickly. I mean, within a few years, there was within 10 years at least, it was available in English in London, which I was thinking about this quite unusual because Italy was always the country which received translations of other countries' literatures in the 19th century. And here was an Italian book that was a sensation outside Italy. And after the English version, there came the American version just a few years later, and then it was being published everywhere. I mean, I don't two hundred and sixty trans um, languages. I think they say. I just couldn't get over that reading it in your review, and 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 Thea mentioned it in her introduction. Yeah. I still can't bring myself to 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 sort of understand how it is the third most translated book after the Bible and the Quran, because there are of course. Many 
fairy stories, children's tales that, that have become part of it. You know, Peter Pan, for example. Yes. It's extraordinary to me. What do you think it is? How do you think that happened? It's very difficult um, to understand. I don't think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of us, this is Disney, this is Disney. I don't think it's that. I think there is something about Pinocchio that you can make, you can turn him into what you want. You can make Pinocchio your own. There are different levels at which the book appeals. You know, an adult reading the book learns a lot about Tuscany at that time and rural poverty and so forth. It links to the whole tradition of fairy stories, and so you can relate to it that way. And Pinocchio is just this character. You can see him whichever way you like, and he is such a visual image. As soon as you see a little Pinocchio puppet, you never forget it again, with that funny (laughs) hat and the pointy (laughs) nose. (laughs) And it's all in the nose, of course. The nose is the bit that we remember above anything else, isn't it? It's all in the nose, and there have been books written about the Freudianism of the symbol, etc., etc., which we won't go into here. But um, remember that the nose, actually, to be fair to Disney, it was Disney who really, <laughs> who really brought in the nose, because for Collardi, um, Pinocchio sometimes lies and his nose doesn't grow. One that has been grafted on in subsequent retellings and particularly in Disney, that, that that absolute sort of intractable association that we have is something that came after. Dis- yeah. Disney has a lot to answer for. <laughs> Disney has a lot to answer for. To be fair, Disney, you know, he made this amazing animated picture in 1940, start of the war, people need something to cheer them up. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you've got beautiful alpine scenes and... I object to um, to the hat that Disney puts on Pinocchio's head. (laughs) And, of course, there is, I mean, Jiminy Cricket. Yes, that's an interesting one. Nails it all, in effect. In in Collodi's Pinocchio, oh dear, Pinocchio gets so angry with the cricket telling him what he should do that he hurls a mallet at it. And probably by accident... The cricket is hurled against the wall and squashed dead. (laughs) Whereas, of course, in the Disney version, there's Jiminy Cricket all dewy-eyed and sweet, Pinocchio's constant companion, etc. It is very much a soft, soft version of Mm. um, Collardi's dark, dark tale. Mm. And and so, I mean, that's one of the professed um, motivations of, of... this new translation, uh, this this new edition. Um, so it's translated by John Hooper and Anna uh, Kraxnia, mm. uh, isn't it? So they, I mean, they want to, they say they want to rescue Pinocchio from precisely this sort of uh, saccharine, child-friendly Disney version. Yes, they do. I, I'm a bit at sea here because um, I think perhaps the Disney version has a greater hold in the States, possibly, than in the UK, because I do think that the Collodi's Pinocchio here is, you know, is widely read, and lots of adaptations have been made for it in book form as well. Think of Michael Morpurgo's wonderful take for children. 
So I'm not sure that the rescue operation is quite as urgent as they seem to think it is. But mm. yeah. I might Although it is, it is about, there is about to be this, as we keep hearing, uh, in, I think it's mentioned on the front cover of this book, isn't it? But there is about to be another Disney version. So maybe they feel it particularly, particularly urgently now. That's right. That is absolutely right. If the Disney version brings people back to the book, that's great. Mm. And also there's a Guillermo del Toro del version Toro. coming out. So that will certainly be darker truer to the dark that sounds very dark indeed yes and that is set in fascist italy i believe so mm. Mm. We um, see. so let's talk about hooper and uh Kratzner's, their mm. approach to it how do they go about this mission of theirs do they uh you know do you think their translation will come to the edition as a whole because i know you you want to talk about the absence of illustrations for, for one thing but is their translation successful it is uh it's a very lively translation. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting translation because they have retained the Italianness of it. Um, there are lots of words to do, you know, because this is a context where hunger is something that uh, is a feature of many of the characters' lives. And they've often retained the names for foodstuffs in Italian, or near the beginning, they retain the Italian for a policeman, a carabiniere, which is who is a sort of military policeman, and they don't use the word policeman. Mm. Um, so there's quite a strong Italian flavour there. It is colloquial, it is chatty, and it is very American. And the Americanism of it comes through, of course, because it is so oral. And I think, in a way, the closer you get to the spoken, the more the idiosyncrasies of the language you're using emerges. Mm. That's what happens here, which is an interesting effect on a non-American English-English reader. Mm, because you get things like, oh boy, and, 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 and shucks, and kids, and all of that sort of language and rather than a few, a few yeah corn mush which is not a word that I'm familiar with yeah is that instead words, of polenta yeah uh, see yes <laughs> well done um, well I am also an Italian expert but I, even I know that polenta isn't really corn mush exactly and also know. polenta is perfectly well known as a word surely yes. now yes. it's yes. on uh, you it's any gastro pub will have polenta these <laughs> days. it is strange that but perhaps uh you know it does raise all sorts of interesting cultural questions and which words travel and which words don't. It's true. Mm. And it's also true that, I mean, English readers already have an excellent translation, uh, which you, you mentioned, um, in the form of Anne Lawson Lucas's version uh, from the mid-90s. Uh, and that's still in print. That's still in print. I think Anne Lawson Lucas, I, I think has, I think she has an excellent introduction. It couldn't be bettered. I really do. Um, and I'm surprised that uh, this new translation seems to be unaware of, I mean, they say they didn't look to read other, you know, they were unaware of any other translations with an introduction. Mm. I think, I mean, Lawson Lucas's translation is, um, it's very good. It, I think it, my one criticism would be it over-translates. So food, mm. sorry, I'm going on about food. But food, um, it looks for equivalent dishes in English. And the curious right. thing is, in a way, 
traditional dishes in English age faster than traditional dishes in Italian. That's true. I'd never really thought about that, but that's that must be true. Yeah. But and also, it, inevitably, no. you'll lose a lot of the, I mean, the, this is the word to use, I suppose, but you'll lose a lot of that Italian flavour, precisely. Flavour is the word, yes. Yeah. You lose the flavour. The other thing I very much like about her translation, which is an Oxford world classic, is that they have included illustrations, the original illustrations, yeah. So like, and in this in this new version, yeah, so let's let's talk about it as a whole. There are, you know, what, what's the feel of it? There are no illustrations. So who do you... Who do you imagine reading this this edition? Well, it's published as a puff, a penguin, I beg your pardon, a penguin classic. And I think it is really, um, given the sheer volume of notes and so on and so forth, I think it's intended primarily for an adult readership. I mean, you may you wouldn't really choose this edition to read aloud to children. I suppose you could. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a classic. And I think what um, Penguin is clearly interested in, it just seems the moment with two new versions coming onto the screens this year to offer another um, translation. But it is a curious because it actually does read very well for children. I mean, children will love the sort of Punch and Judy effects and things mm. like that. And it does catch those. But um, it's it's a curious hybrid. It's as though the translation is going in one direction and the apparatus and the volume is moving in another direction. Mm, it sounds that way. It doesn't sound like the sort of book that you can... Imagine, even though it might it might play well on an oral level, you can't really imagine it being the the kind of edition that you know a, a child will curl up and and peer no. over the shoulder of of the parent as as they're reading because there's nothing to to look at and engage with on the page. No, absolutely not. I don't think you, I would. I certainly wouldn't choose this to, no, to read to a child. I'd choose another one. Yeah, yeah. But so I suppose I mean to be fair to the translators, and they have succeeded in their. It sounds like they've succeeded in their objective of convincing people that. Uh, Pinocchio isn't for children or you know isn't only for children but it's a it's a bit of a a bittersweet success I think that yes I I think they've done very well you know Pinocchio can be or Claudia can be happy with it I mean any great work in a sense the more translations the better the more experiments with it the better and this is a fine translation in many ways and I love the way it brings over or brings out the Italianness and I do like the the punch of it you know the um it's great that is all great that is fine but I am perplexed I'm a bit perplexed by it they clearly couldn't get illustrations past the publishers Uh, I think they say something somewhere else and that's that's just a pity but Mm. it will reduce uh obviously I would have thought it's a it will reduce the readership because if you're going to buy a copy of Pinocchio and you're going to read it you want it with the classic illustrations Mm, yeah so this is one for the academics library and of course there are university courses now on children's literature um or people interested in Italy yes Mm. it's part of an Italian national culture yeah it's still playing its part in what sounds like uh it's going to be another big year uh, for Pinocchio he's going to be very very busy Anne Hallamore Caesar, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you.
Still to come on the show, we take a look at the roller coaster life of the chef and TV presenter, Anthony Bourdain. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you will never miss an episode. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. to the TLS podcast with the TLS's Thea Lenarduzzi and me, Alex Clark. Now, Anthony Bourdain's death by suicide in 2018 shocked his legions of fans to the core, not least because the chef, restaurateur, writer and TV presenter had seemed to embody a fierce appetite for life. From his memoir Kitchen Confidential to globe-trotting programmes such as A Cook's Tour and Parts Unknown, Bourdain had captivated audiences with his insatiable interest in food, places and people. Now, two books, one filled with memories from friends, family and colleagues, the other by a member of his so-called Pirates crew, take us deeper into Bourdain's life, ranging over his childhood, his heroin addiction and his political commitments. George Berridge has reviewed them both and joins us now. Hi, George. 
Hello, Alex. George, you're a big fan of Bourdain, aren't you? Why is that? How did that come about? Uh, well, that's right. Well, my introduction to Bourdain was the same, I suppose, as many others. I worked in a small kitchen in Cornwall when I was a teenager, and my manager, or perhaps one of the chefs more likely, was talking about it. It's funny that the first time anyone gets to introduce you to Bourdain's work, either his writing or his shows, it's always with this kind of gawping, wide-eyed excitement and a whole monologue about just how kind of cool he was. So I think that's probably when I first heard about him and started uh, reading his writing and watching his shows. I didn't know that you used to work in a kitchen, George, so I didn't even realise how brilliant a commission this was. That's right. <laughs> brilliant. Well, I have this this kind of image of teenage George, you know, doing the dishes and bussing tables in Cornwall and trying to imagine that he was actually in Manhattan. <laughs> and they just don't seem... There's a bit of a disconnect there, George. They don't seem awfully similar. That's true. What did it feel like to you when you actually started turning those pages? Well, I think, clearly, the kitchen I worked in in Cornwall was 100 miles away from the kind of New York brasseries that uh, Bourdain worked in. I'm thinking crab sandwiches. A lot of crab sandwiches. <laughs> crab sandwiches and lots of ice cream and things like that. Um, but I think that, certainly, kind of the when you start reading uh, Kitchen Confidential for the first time, it's the it's the description of kind of the heat and the smell and all the stress and the chaos that kind of has to be managed before the customer is politely given their tidy plate. I think that that certainly rang true. And the abuse, I suppose. My husband worked in a kitchen uh, way back when as well, and he he's some of the stories he's told me, like that the the chefs used to. He was pot washing. He was he was he was too young to be there, but he was pot washing, and the chefs used to come into the kitchen chuck a load of peppercorns into a dry frying pan, close the door and leave. Oh, God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Horrific. It's sort of ingeniously nasty, isn't it? It's so cruel. Well, oh. um, I think that, I mean, certainly there's a lot of that. I mean, Tempest can get, it's a bit of a pressure cooker environment, but I think that certainly there's a lot of camaraderie and there can be, there can be abuse. And I'm sure that the further up you ch- the chain you get and, when kitchens are kind of taught in the French brigade style, I'm sure that becomes uh, more severe. But certainly there's a lot of mm-hmm. kind of playful camaraderie that goes on. I remember my, uh, my old chef that I worked under for a while was a real, a real chilly head, but a real kind of heat freak and made it his mission to every so often just, you know, you'd have kind of your, your glass of water, whatever you're drinking from in the, in the kitchen and just to line the rim very, very lightly with this kind of nuclear level hot oh, sauce. God. So it'd be a boiling hot day and suddenly you'd be there kind of shoveling yogurt or ice cream into your mouth with tears running down your face. It was all in good humour, so we were told. Oh dear. I just didn't realise we were bringing up so much trauma. That's right, a lot of past trauma. <laughs> Not what we thought. I think when we, you know, when you were asked to write about Bourdain and then today when we asked you to come and talk about it, I don't think we realised we were going to be bringing up so many memories for you. So we'll, we'll press on with Bourdain and what it felt like to you. I'm wondering really... Uh, was he such a hit partly because there was nothing like that? Was writing about food and restaurants and the whole world just very different then? I wonder if that's what captured people's imaginations on top of his own writing. Bourdain kind of inherited from a long a long line of food writers. I mean, it's it's clear that he had read some of the great food writers, like uh, he expressed his admiration for Julia Child and MFK Fisher. Um, but certainly I think that what he wanted to do was bring his own personal experience working in these kind of whole cuisine restaurants and that nobody had really been talking about that because for the most part uh chefs have been far too busy working grueling shifts to have any time to write about this 
And so what he gave was this kind of unvarnished opinion of, look, you know, for every pristine plate that comes out, this is the kind of chaos and blood and sweat that goes into it. And I think that that was a, uh, that was an important thing that, that he managed to do with the first, the first essay. And certainly, you know, there are some memorable things in there that people still talk about now, just how much butter goes into the dishes that you eat and, you know, what days to order fish, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's always all about the butter, isn't it? I mean, when you think of him, you obviously think of charisma, charm, a sort of larger than lifeness. But these two books reveal a much more complex picture, don't they? Just tell us a bit about them, what they are and how they differ from each other. Well, certainly. I mean, what comes across from these two books in their different ways is that Bourdain was kind of deeply torn as a person. He could be kind of loudmouth and challenging and energetic, and he was a joy to be around and a, an enormous kind of storyteller. But at the same time, people talk about his his deep, deep shyness and his and later on his discomfort with his own fame and and again the the pits of depression that he frequently found himself falling into. Um, and it's a it's a the two books are useful, I think, for those of us who've followed Bourdain or who've followed Bourdain for such a long time. They're very useful in kind of getting behind getting behind the man, I think. And we'll perhaps never know the, the true complexity of what he was working through. But I think they do paint a good picture of a man battling with his own internal contradictions. Laurie Wooliver's book uh, is, is a real sort of composite portrait, isn't it? And, and there are lots of testimonies, memories, anecdotage. Uh, from friends and family and colleagues and people throughout his life. I mean, he didn't come from a sort of restauranty background or cooking background, did he? He came from quite a sort of intellectual, politically engaged family. What were his beginnings like? Neither of his parents uh, worked in food. He had a, um, but his parents were, as you say, they were kind of culturally and politically engaged family. His mother worked for the, uh, his mother was a copy editor of the New York Times. Um but certainly they had a they they were very switched on they they watched a lot of kind of foreign films and Bourdain when he was, when he was very very early was engaged with kind of the foreign politics of the US and that was later reflected in his reading so uh, as i mentioned in the piece sort of his early readings of people like Huntress Thompson uh, influenced his kind of sincere engagement with the US kind of US foreign policy particularly through uh, southeast asia and uh, latin america and his, his parents were anti-McCarthy, anti-Vietnam War, um, all of that sort of fed into his worldview. Yes, that's right. And I think that that certainly informed his kind of his quite democratic uh, and fair worldview. Yes, I think that's right. Well, you see it, don't you, in, in the TV programmes and in, in the sort of documentary style uh, that he adopted. It would be really easy to see him as a person sort of taking off around the world in pursuit of adventures. But he's much more than a thrill seeker, it, it seems. I mean, there's a lot of politics in these two books, but he also brought that to his TV work. And he actually wanted to find out what was going on in the places that he visited. And food was a kind of way in to do that. Yes, and I think that I think that really gets to the core of why why we come to admire Bourdain so much is that if you watch or read him what's really obvious is his kind of democratic and fair worldview I mean he came to he came to fame relatively late and the real sense that we get from these books is that he took the position he was given seriously and so when he speaks to people it's it's with a sense of decency and with a real sincere interest and when he traveled it was to seek out how people actually lived and how food connected them to their environment and to each other. 
I mean, it wasn't just to dine in the world's best restaurants, which you know it easily could have been. Uh, but what he wanted to do was something more important, I think, something more valuable and lasting. And do you do you think that that you you mentioned a kind of a, a, a democratic sensitivity? Do you think that that's how he ended up being so um, involved with the Me Too movement in 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 the in the later years in the final years? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, obviously there is there's much that these books go into about his association with uh, Asia Argento and the Me Too movement. But I think that it's not to say that he kind of got infatuated with the idea via her. I think that Me Too symbolised to him kind of extensive abuses of power through bullying and violence. And that was something he could earnestly align himself with. I mean, his kind of cynicism around institutions and bullying has been evident both through his approach to US foreign policy and to his attitude towards how kitchens were how kitchens were run back in the day and the injustices that went on there as well. I wonder how much it's it's also you know brings up those ideas of masculinity because we we do associate this image of the sort of roaring furious chef and these sweaty kitchens as a, as a place that is essentially they are they are male spaces and women have kind of had to battle their way into them and I think that was something that he engaged with a lot, wasn't it? But but it's also kind of easy to see him in a way a little bit like that. The Hunter S. Thompson figure, the Bourdain figure. There is something very male about it. I wonder if this these books give a sort of more nuanced picture of that. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, when you read about, uh, particularly in Laurie Wolliver's book, when you read about his early time in the kitchen yeah he 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 worked in brigade style kitchens he worked in the kind of grueling hot environments where traditionally there was a lot of violence and there was a lot of abuse and and where women's faces were very rarely seen or certainly if they were there they had had to work very 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 hard to get there but what comes across throughout all of these books is that people talk about his kind of fairness in the kitchen that nobody says that he was there's no con here that he was kind of difficult with few moments of staff and people frequently make note about the fact that he was very, very respectful. Because I think that this comes down to, again, part of that kind of democratic sensitivity that he really did believe it seems in a real sense of kind of fairness that, that people, you know, you earned respect and you got respect that way. But I think that he really stood against kind of the abuses of power and the kind of bullying system that had gone before. And he he made no secret at all of his own uh, weaknesses and failings, did he? I mean, the addiction um, for for one thing. But I'm thinking um, I, I was in New York when um, when he died, and I was really struck by how I mean, everyone was talking about it and 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 really moved by the whole by the whole thing. And you know, I, I think I hadn't really realised how many people he had touched beyond the kind of foodie. Uh, audience that you would expect to be interested in his work. I wonder if it was precisely because he he wore his flaws and, and, and weaknesses so so openly. Yes, I think that's I think that's true, and I think that part of it is is a reason that we've touched on is because he came to he came to fame quite late, and he took it as I say he took it very very seriously. He took it with a sort of a sort of honesty. He was aware, and it comes up in this book. He was very, very aware of the privilege that he had been given kind of this late in the game that he'd worked so hard for. And so I think that that honesty comes across in his shows and in his writing. He he really does think of himself as he is a chef that got lucky. Mm-hmm. And so there's no sense that he believes himself to be kind of above the rest. And certainly there's no sense that when he goes, when he travels and when he meets people across the world, there's no sense that he's doing it as kind of, you know, I'm the fancy New York chef and I'm going to 
kind of sneer down at your foods and he and certainly that was a thing that he really really took took against he was he did not like kind of the there's a there's a show by uh andrew zimmern in the u.s that used to run called bizarre foods and i think that was kind of uh to him seemed like the nadir of food programming so you didn't want to be that sort of food tourist that's right no i think that to him food was completely linked to politics and to geography and to kind of culture and religion and it wasn't just something to go and kind of gawp at and kind of say look how weird it is of course you you mentioned that you know his his luck and obviously it's always lucky that a book catches a moment and that you know however good it is and a personality does too sometimes those things can be absolutely brilliant and go on the under the radar but of course there were so many ways that he wasn't lucky and 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 the sort of fragility of his mental health I think is something you you mentioned in in the piece that you know there are attempts to sort of go right back particularly in something that his his brother describes aren't there yes that's right I mean uh it's one of the first things that we read in Laurie Williver's book is that uh that Gladys who was Bourdain's mother really was convinced from early on that she detected a kind of anxiousness in Bourdain from very early on and she puts that down to the fact that uh both of her parents died very suddenly when she was pregnant with him and she was became convinced that this was kind of the source of it. But he had a he had a difficult relationship with his parents as well. His parents argued and later divorced and he always throughout the book he had a difficult relationship with his mother. He never really managed to reconcile. And this of course blended in his uh mid teenage years with when he started taking uh when he started taking harder and harder drugs. And was the moment where he sort of got himself off them uh, the sort of defining moment, do you think, for the, the rest of his, his life? Well, I think that there was a part, I mean, the, the books don't touch on a kind of crossing over point so much, but I think what happened is that he realised that if he was going to pursue pursue his ambition clearly and fairly, there was no way he was going to do that by going out and scoring every night. It just wasn't going to happen. And that's, I mean, that's what's amazing, really, at the start of Wooliver's book is the amount of work that Bourdain put in. And I think that's perhaps the thing that people who came to him uh, after he became famous perhaps don't appreciate that when he first started out in New York, you know, there were, there were decades before he became famous and he was cooking, he was working these grueling kitchen shifts, drinking, then getting high. And then he was going back home to write. I mean, before he, before Kitchen Confidential came out, he'd written two crime books that, you know, neither of them had a particularly great reception, but he, he was going home and writing them. And I think that, most people, anyone who's worked in the hospitality industry will know that most people to do that amount of work, most people be either dead on their feet or you know, just plain dead, I suppose. Tell us a bit about the second of the books by Tom Vitale in The Weeds, because he was somebody who worked really closely with, uh, with Anthony Bourdain, wasn't he? That's right. And I think that it's, uh, he worked as a director and later an editor with uh, Bourdain for most of his career. And it's a really important book to have alongside Laurie Wooliver's because it gives a, both for the fans, I mean, it gives a kind of unvarnished look behind the scenes. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun in that. Certainly the, you know, Bourdain and his crew spent 250 days of the year plus on the road at times. And so there's a lot of camaraderie that goes on there. There's a lot of, for those of us who have watched a lot of his shows, there'll be a real kind of value in second watching after reading Vitaly's book. But what his book also gives us, of course, is a a glimpse into what it was like to actually work with Bourdain. Bourdain, the man in front of the camera, and Bourdain, the man behind it. As we kind of touched on it, paints a very conflicting 
image there's a there's a wonderful line in it that says that tony was hard to be around but he was painful to be away from which i think is a really wonderful line and certainly there's a lot of stuff that vitali talks about in this book he talks about a lot of the fun that they had together but talks as well about Bourdain could be difficult to be around certainly that there are moments where at one point when they're in the congo he forces vitali who is admittedly squeamish to behead a chicken for their dinner and there's another quite upsetting moment later on in Borneo, towards the end of Bourdain's life, Vitali says something kind of harmless but obnoxious over dinner one night. And Bourdain, having had a couple of beers himself, charges through the room in and pins him up to the wall by his throat, which it's really quite, it's really quite intense and extreme to read. It sounds like precisely the sort of behaviour that, that Bourdain, you know, railed against. So he must then have been completely, you know, contorted by by feelings of guilt. That's right. I think that I mean when he when it comes to debriefing afterwards, there's a very there's a very real sense from Bourdain that let's not speak about this again, let's kind of water under the bridge yet. Um but suddenly he there you know, there are kind of breaking point moments in this, but what really comes across, and it's not to excuse the moments at all where he is uh, the moments of kind of violence or unfairness, but I think that what it comes down to is he he pushed very, very hard. What he wanted to create with you know, the tiny he was given was something kind of perfect. And it was that perfectionism that drove him a lot of the time. And it drove him to be firm with his crew and try, try to get the best out of his crew. But clearly there were times when that, that kind of fell out of, uh, fell out of sync with what was fair and what was decent. Those, those events do seem to be kind of few and far between. I don't want to give the wrong impression by seeing that he was kind of a monster to work with. No, you're sort of imagining like flashes of Klaus Kinski in the in the jungle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly it. Klaus Kinski in the kitchen. Wow. <laughs> Just to look at it sort of squarely, there is always a temptation when books are published after somebody's death. And when that death has been by suicide, there there comes to be a sort of almost diagnostic element, doesn't it? You know, what what went wrong with this life? What what brought him to this point where he didn't want to live it? any longer and I wondered if that sort of was the lens through which you and you think maybe other people will be reading. That's right um I mean actually just at the same time that I was writing this review um Jane Didion passed away and I was reading a little bit of her from the White Album there's a line in there which she has which is that she says that we tell ourselves stories in order to live and we look for the sermon in the suicide and I think that that kind of that kind of gets to what we're talking about, that certainly when we read these books uh, through, it really seems like both for Vitali in particular, that he's looking to try and understand exactly what led to Bourdain's death. And while there is a temptation both for the reader and for Vitali, it seems, to find some sort of concrete cause, that is to say, was it his tumultuous relationship with Asia Argento or was it something else? I think that what we come slowly to realise is that Bourdain had been plagued by these kind of demons for most of his most of his adult life, and that there was no there was no easy or simple answer to why his death happened. That he had worked he had worked against kind of the darkness within himself for a very very long time. There had been nothing really like Kitchen Confidential before it came out, and I think it, it certainly inspired a whole new uh, a whole generation of writers and of cooks. Um, and I think that what his kind of gift to the world was, such as it is, was to give people a sense that we shouldn't just consider food 
as a thing to kind of admire for its gustatory pleasure, but we should admire it for the work that goes into it and we should admire it for the ways that people can create it even under the harshest of conditions. And I think that what Bourdain gave to the world kind of imposed the sense that this is how we should look at food, not just as a thing on a plane, but as a whole infrastructure of things that go on before it reaches our plates. That sensitivity is kind of what's passed on and that's a real value that we take away. I'm going to have to ask you, and I'm going to put you on, on the culinary spot in all sorts of ways. You are now, you know, a literary journalist. You work in a completely, and I know that things can get very tough on press days sometimes, but I don't think it is quite like a brigade kitchen. Do you ever want to go back to the life of, of a, a chef de cuisine or a chef de party? <laughs> no, uh, frankly, not in a years. I just, <laughs> I simply don't have the energy. Very definitive, and perhaps... Perhaps not even only because your editor was is no doubt listening, but it's not the life for you. It's something of a cliche, but working in hospitality is hard. And there has to be some form of masochism in you if you're going to keep doing it. And I think that uh, whether I have the strength for that anymore, I think is probably beyond doubt. I think I'm probably possibly kind of too comfortable with uh, writing editing now. Yeah, luckily you're very good at writing, so you just keep going down that road. Well, you're very kind. <laughs> but is he very good at cooking? This is what I really want to know as our, as our th- thoughts turn towards our next meal. Um, George, speciality, what is the signature dish? Oh, well, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I love cooking, but I think so much of it is contextual. I mean, I, I, look out of, I looked out of the window just before I came down to the, uh, came to record this, and the weather is grey and wretched. And so I think of kind of chicken thighs and cream and tarragon, I think, is a thing that I've cooked possibly a hundred times before from an old Nigel Slater book. But I think that most of the time what I'm doing really is, you know, since I live in the wrong country, it seems, waiting for the weather to turn, because really what I want is kind of <laughs> simple food and cold beer in the sun, something like shaved fennel and citrus or tomato salad or good tin sardines. Like I'd, I'd, be, I'd be completely happy with something simple like that, if only the weather would change. That's a big if only that, <laughs> yeah. sadly. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, think of, we'll think of the shaved fennel days days ahead and if anybody accuses us of being metropolitan elitists we will waggle our shaved fennel and citrus salads in their faces and say no this is this is food for everybody and in the first part of the program we did talk about polenta briefly so we've covered both bases i think we did we absolutely did we're, we're spanning the culinary and cultural <laughs> the highs and the lows <laughs> the highs and the lows george that was fascinating thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Anne Hallamore Caesar and George Berridge thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin we'll be back next week but for now from Alex Clark and from me goodbye
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.